The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Okay, today's reading comes from Acts chapter 14, verse 8 through 18. If you're following along in the book or in the Bible underneath your chairs, it's on page 923. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is God's word. So my son Landon, most of you guys know him as hard to miss. He's a seven-year-old ball of energy. Uh, He just turned seven in late August. So he's a young seven in a lot of ways. And he is in the middle of his second season playing flag football. Now, saying that he's playing flag football is, I don't know, it's probably an insult to the sport in some way. Because I'll say this, he is a part of a flag football team. And he's on the field during practices and the actual game. And I won't go any much further than that, just to say that's, that's sort of the situation that we're in. Uh, but he's in the second season playing flag football or doing something like playing flag football. And, and yesterday, this, this just give you an idea of the situation that it is in. So uh, yesterday he got a carry. He got one carry because they have to make everybody touch the ball at this, at this level. So he gets one carry. And I won't tell you what happened in the play, but he, he got one, one carry. And I overheard a parent of the other team who didn't know I was his, his dad was sitting beside them. And, and they said, look, he's so tiny, bless his heart. So that just kind of gives you an idea of, of kind of what was happening on the field at the time that that's kind of the situation he's in. He's the, he is the uh, smallest player on probably, it's not probably the worst team in the league. So he's the smallest player on the worst team in the league. Uh, our parents. So this is the kind of the situation that was yesterday. Yesterday, his team was, so excited. They were like, at the close of the game, they were running and, and like high fives and so excited because of the outcome of the game because they had, they had recorded two first downs. 
And that was like, so, so they, they, they recorded, you, you, you have to cross midfield. You have three downs to cross midfield, which is in this level, it's not a hard thing to do, but they, you get three downs across midfield. They had done that twice. The other team had scored two touchdowns, uh, but, but it was a moral victory because we had, they, they had gotten, our team had gotten one first down the week before. And the last time we'd played this team, they had won by the mercy rule in the second half of the game. So, so we, we were celebrating. It was a, it was a moral victory, but, but here's what stands out to me. Like the other teams, some of them are impressive that there's a team that's the giants and they literally are the giants. They stand, they swore that they pulled the names out of a hat, but somehow this team pulled out all the like big nine-year-olds and, and they're all like this tall and like, and fast and like they're imposing to the other team. Some, some other play, some of the teams are pretty impressive. There's this one team, the Ravens, and they have like, they all line up and they stand up and look at the coach and he sends in plays to them. And our team, meanwhile, doesn't really even know where to stand on the field. The coach more than once has literally picked up Landon and carried him to where he needs to be on the field and set him down. That's kind of the situation. But, but here's the deal. The other teams are, some of them are bigger and some of them are faster. But what, what really is at the heart of our team's ineptitude, and I don't really be piling on this team. I, I, they're I, they're, they're Awesome to watch, but this is, uh, the, the the key to our team's sort of ineptitude isn't really based upon the speed. Could we have some speed or the size? Is there's sort of a disconnect? You guys, you guys have been at youth sports enough to know. Like, so, so my son Landon spent the second half of the game doing this with his hands, like the whole time. We don't know what it was, but he was just standing there doing this, like that's what he was doing as the game as the game went on. Sometimes while the play was going on, he was just standing there doing this. There's a there's a there's a disconnect in there somewhere between either understanding, a clear understanding of what the goals of the game are or just a being unconvinced of its importance, which is what I think Land is just unconvinced that this is an important thing to do, to be engaged in the play. He's getting better, but I think he's probably unconvinced of the importance or they don't believe that they can actually succeed at the game. They've seen each other enough to know like, Crossing midfield is a big win, and the other team scoring touchdowns, and that's just kind of the way things are. And, and I was thinking about that yesterday in terms of church, because I think it's kind of the same way sometimes. Now, I, I think it's easy for church for us to, to lose track of what the true goal, the true mission is. Jesus gave us the mission. He said, go make disciples in all the world. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 28, verse 18. Let's take a look at that real quick before we get back to our, or we get to our passage. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. This is the last thing that Jesus says to his followers before he ascends into heaven. When Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that's the mission. And as we're focusing this season as a church in prayer and fasting, saying, God, what's next? What do we next? What are the... What do we need to do individually and corporately in order to grow into a level of maturity? To grow from being a church plant into being a mature church. As we're thinking about that and focusing that on praying that an important measure of a church's maturity is how we're fulfilling the mission. And if we aren't fulfilling the mission, then there's some sort of disconnect between not under being unclear or not being clear on what the goal is. Or being unconvinced of its importance. Or we don't, actually don't believe that we can actually succeed at the mission. But Acts 14 shows us what happens when a church and when a people and its leaders are clear and convinced and believe in the mission that God has given us. We're going to look at it in three parts. Number one, we're going to see mission begins vertically. Secondly, mission pushes wider. And thirdly, mission digs deeper. Mission begins vertically. Mission pushes wider. And mission digs deeper. So Paul and Barnabas at the beginning of Acts chapter 14 uh, have traveled now to a town called Iconium. And the the way they got there was they were, as we covered last week in Acts chapter 13, in the beginning of Acts chapter, thir- Acts chapter 13, they're back in Syria in the city of Antioch, which is a major city. There's a church there. It's a multicultural church. And they focused, the leaders do, and I think the whole rest of the church was as well, focused on God. They worship God and are, in, are fasting together. They're really asking, and so, we don't know the exact nature of the ask. They're asking God, what do you have next for us? And it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so they fast and pray some more. They lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and they send them out to go on a church planting expedition, a church planting mission. And they go, end up going to the island of Cyprus. They travel across the whole island, island of Cyprus and they travel up on, by boat to the area of Turkey and they shared the gospel in several places, ending up at what's called Pisidian Antioch, which is a, a, a city called Antioch in the area of Pisidia. Then they have to leave Pisidia because things aren't going out well. Remember, they uh, aren't, don't end well there. It says, verse 51 of chapter 13, but they, uh, well, before that, it says they drove them out of their district, but they shook off, that's, uh, the church planting team, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I, I think what we see here is before we get to the rest of Acts chapter 14, as we ask the question, how and why are Paul and Barnabas in Iconium and then travel to Lystra, then travel to Derbe? And we ask, why are they on this missionary journey to begin with? Is first of all, that a vertical focus leads us to mission. We see it back in Syrian Antioch when the leaders are gathered together and they're worshiping the Lord. He speaks to them and says, here's, they're focusing on God. They're focusing on him, worshiping him. And he speaks to them and says, set apart for me these two for the purpose which I have called them, a mission that I have called them to. And it's been that way since the beginning. When we, when human beings see and meet God and we begin to see who he is and we share his heart, it inevitably ends up with him sending us on 
mission. We see it at Moses, right? He sees the bushes burning on the side of the mountain. He goes up. God says, take off your shoes for the ground that you're on is now holy ground. He sees uh, the, the glory of God burning in the bush. The bush is not consumed. He feels this sense of awe and God speaks to him, declares who he is. And then what does he do? He gives him a mission to go back to Egypt and free his people. When Isaiah is in prayer and God gives him a vision and he sees the glory glory of God filling the temple and the earth shakes and amazing things are happening and he sees God in his glory. What happens next? God said, he hears God say, who will we send and who will go for us? And he says, I will go send me. We see that when Jesus calls the apostles and he calls them the very beginning as he calls them to himself to follow him. He says, follow me and I will make you what? I'll make you fishers of men. At the very call to himself, it turns in a call to go out on mission. It inevitably is joined together. It happens with Paul, who is on this mission. When he sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, he sees him in his glory. He becomes a believer, and immediately God tells him, Jesus tells him, I have a mission for you to do. When human beings see God, when we are vertically focused on our God, we see him as who he truly is and we see ourselves for who we truly are. It inevitably and always is connected to being sent on his mission. So it's no accident when the church at Antioch focused on worshiping God that they were called and compelled to a new level of mission. We talked last week about how costly that mission would have been for them. It was costly for them as a church because they lost key leaders. It was costly for Paul and Barnabas because they're leaving the comfort and security. Traveling was incredibly treacherous, incredibly dangerous. As we see that in this passage, he's he's attempted to be stoned once, and he is successfully stoned, Paul is, another time. And that's just on this part, this leg of the journey. They're pushed out of town, raced out of town. They're... It is not easy for them, and it's not easy for the descending church because they are supporting these leaders as they go to plant churches. Here's the truth. Our devotion to outward mission is always a thermometer of our vertical focus on God. Our devotion to outward mission is always a thermometer of our vertical focus on God. Now, it's important here that we don't get the order wrong. Remember, the people back at Antioch, they focused on God and they worshiped him. And he called them and made it clear what his mission was for them. And they went under his direction and they went under his power. That's what comes first. And that's why we're spending this time in prayer and fasting. We're saying, God, there's a lot of different directions we can go as a church. There's things that we want to do. There's things that we see that could be done. And we don't know, God, what direction you want us to go in. We don't know how to get to the next level of being a mature church and do what you've called Doxa Church to do along the Grand Strand. And we're saying we're going to take time and we're going to pause and we're going to focus on you. And we believe that you will be faithful to lead us and speak to us. But we are going to wait and hear that first. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to focus on you and let you tell us what you have for us. We're not asking you to bless our mission. We're saying, God, show us where you're at work and let us join you in what you're doing. 
I, I think that one of the most tragic stories in the whole entire Bible is the story of Samson, who had great strength. By the way, we don't know that Samson could have looked like me. We don't know that he looked like Ronnie. We don't know that he was big and buff. Have you ever seen Ronnie's calves? We don't know that, we don't know that Samson looked like Ronnie. He might have looked like me. It says that he had the power to do what he did because the Holy Spirit was with him. And then at one point he decides that he's, he keeps tempting God and tempting God and tempting God. And at one point he rises to overcome his enemies like he has every other time. And it says, and this is, I think, one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. He did not realize that the Holy Spirit had left him. It's a tragic thing to go about doing our own thing in life and our own thing as a church and not realize that the Holy Spirit is not with us. We're saying, God, you go before us, not we go before you, and you show up and help us do what we want to do. Help us see your agenda. But notice that our devotion to mission is a thermometer, not a thermostat. If I am not personally devoted to the mission of God, if I don't really, really care, and that's a good question for each of us to ask this morning, do I personally really care about the mission of God? And if I don't really care about the mission of God, it's a, it's a thermometer, it's a barometer that shows me that my vertical focus on him is broken somewhere. I, I worship my way into service. I don't serve my way into worship. So the question is, as you look at your life, and you look at your devotion, your personal devotion to God's mission, my question is, What's your personal spiritual temperature this morning? Because if there's a disconnect, if I don't really, if I'm not really convinced it's important, if I've forgotten what the goal is, and I don't really believe that he'll do what he said he'll do in regards to mission, and there's a disconnect between me and him vertically, and I have to reappropriate my focus to him. The reason that when people draw near to God, they're sent on mission is because when you draw near to him, you begin to share the heart of God. When you really worship God as the most important, most valuable thing in all of life, then you desperately want to know what his heart is. There are some things that I'm interested in that Megan isn't remotely interested in but she shows some amount of care or interest or spends time in those areas because she cares and loves me and she wants to know my heart. And we do that for each other, don't we? I listen to stories from my kids about things I honestly, some of which I don't personally have a lot of care about, but I care about them and I love them. And so I want to share their heart. So I'm learning about Minecraft. (laughs) could not personally care any less about it. But they love it. And so I want to know more about it so I can share their heart and share their interest. When you worship God as the most valuable thing in your life, you want to share his heart. And his heart is for his glory and for the spread of his fame among all peoples. His heart is to see people brought from deadness to life, from darkness to light. 
When we draw near to God, we share his heart. And then when we draw near to God, we're sent by the very authority of God and we're enabled by the power of God. When you're sent by God, you share his heart. And then when you go, you go under his authority and not yours. And you go enabled by his power, not yours. And that makes for a totally different missionary journey, a totally different church planning journey for Paul and Barnabas that they had just decided, hey, let's go do this. Mission begins vertically, but mission pushes wider. Acts 14, verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered, that's Paul, Barnabas, and the church planning team, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained, (laughs) look at that, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see in there how God, they went under God's authority and he moves with his power as they go on, not their own power. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continue to preach the gospel. Mission pushes wider. When we are focused upon God and he calls us to mission, mission always pushes us towards those who haven't heard or haven't believed. That's what leads Paul and Barnabas to leave the comfort. Look at, think of how hard it would be. Not only do they leave the comfort of Antioch with other great leaders and a strong church, but every time they get to a town or a city and they share the gospel enough so that there begins to be a church there, and they start to establish some, some people, and they appoint some leaders, what do they do next? They move on to the next place. Right when it should get comfortable, they move on to the next town or the next city. Why? Because mission always pushes to those who haven't heard or haven't believed. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby are all really kind of primitive backwater towns. They're not major metropolitan areas in the ancient world. They're smaller kind of backwards areas, but the people that lived there didn't know the good news of the gospel, and that's what pushed and and propelled Barnabas and Paul to go there. Again, I wonder, does that push and compel us? When we hear about world events and places that are upside down, is it just simply interesting to us or does it push and compel us to wonder, is there a faithful witness there to the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ? As we talk to our neighbors, do we get bothered that they're, they leave their trash can out too long or there's trash in our yard. I'm actually the person who leaves my trash can out too long and the trash is in from my trash in their yard. Uh, but do I, do, I really, do I really care about the fact whether they have heard and believe the truth 
of the gospel and whether they have, are convinced of the beauty that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. When I see God for who he is and I share his heart, it pushes me and compels me to, do, to leverage my time and my energy and my finances to the end that people would hear and know who have not heard, who have not known, or who have not believed. That's my neighbors, that's my coworkers, that's people all along the Grand Strand who have not yet heard or believed, and that's people in other nations and other cultures who have not. Mission pushes us towards those who haven't believed or who haven't heard, and and mission pushes us on to risk. Uh, Look at these several passages in Acts 14, verses 2 and 3 that we just read. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. (laughs) So, so they... He poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they, the brothers remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. Isn't that interesting, that, that tie in there? It doesn't say that people heard and believed, so they stayed and kept on proclaiming. It says, no, they poisoned the minds of the people, and that's why they stayed and proclaimed the gospel. Look at verses 6 and 7 that we read as well. They learned of it. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. Okay, that makes sense, right? Like somebody's planning to stone us, so let's leave town, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding countries. And what did they do when they got there? They continued to preach the gospel. Look, verses, verses 19 and 20. But Jews came, this is when they get to Lystra, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, so two previous places they've been, and having persuaded the crowds, they, they stoned, they were successful this time. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. All right, so that's crazy. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. And entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That does not make logical sense. Every time that there is that they are persecuted for sharing their faith, it causes them to push on further and to share more and to share more faithfully. They get pushed out of a city, they go to the next city. They get pushed out of that city, go to the next city. That city, they successfully stone them. He gets up, they leave, and then they turn around and end up visiting all the cities that pushed them out and tried to kill them along the way. Mission pushes us to risk. Because when we share the heart of, heart of God, we see that some things are more important than temporary and temporal pleasures. Some things are more important than the... Uh, approval of man around us. Some things are of eternal value. They matter eternally to God. And they matter eternally to the people who will hear and who will believe. Some people won't. You see that in the stories. It says that some people rejected it. Some people believed. Not everybody will believe. But those who, that, who do 
us sharing the gospel with them and shedding risk and pushing on is of eternal significance to them and is of eternal pleasure and importance to the heart of God. Mission pushes us to risk, but then we also see that mission pushes us to notice and care for individuals. Verses 8 through 10 that Ashley read for us now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. A cripple would have been absolutely ostracized in an ancient community. They would have either believed that uh, uh, the gods were punishing him or that he was not, uh, not as valuable as a re- regular healthy human being. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Paul was on a mission. He was on God's mission, and so that pushed him to notice and to care for individuals who otherwise society would have overlooked. He looked intently into this man's eyes like a human being. And he saw God at work there. And I wonder how often we don't look at people in the eyes because we just want to like just get in the store and get out as quickly as we can. We don't somebody start at work starts to talk about a conversation that we really don't want to get pulled into. And we just rather just look over that and move on with our day-to-day business. And we don't actually take the time to stop and look somebody in the eye and see, God, are you at work here? Or how are you at work here in this person's life? And if we would stop and do that, I wonder if we're sharing the heart of God, if we wouldn't see him move in some amazing, powerful ways in their life and in the lives of the people around us. Mission pushes us to notice and care for individuals, but also mission pushes us to understand where people are coming from. Now listen to how Paul addresses the crowd at Lystra. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in their likeness of men. So that would have made sense because here in uh, uh, in Lystra, the whole actually surrounding area, uh, it, they worshipped uh, the god Zeus, the other the other Greek gods, and they uh, there actually was a a strong a, a well known pair a story uh, that was circulating at the time about the gods came down to this area and they looked for uh, looked for somebody who would host them and nobody would let them in except this one poor peasants and they blessed those peasants who let them stay in their house and they destroyed the rest of the area like it was a kind of a common myth or parable or story so that the idea of Zeus and the gods coming down to their area was a was a pretty well-known thing and so when they see this powerful thing happen this lame man walks they say 
uh, Her- Zeus and Hermes have come down to us. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. It's interesting how Paul addresses the people here at Lystra when you compare this uh, mini-sermonette with the sermon that's recorded back in the last chapter in Pisidian Antioch. Whenever he addressed the people of the Pisidian Antioch, he was talking to Jews, and he talked about how he tied the promise of Jesus in with the Old Testament prophecies about what was to come. But he doesn't lead with that whenever he gets here to the city of Lystra where they were not aware of the Old Testament prophecies. And if they were aware, then they would not have believed them. He meets them where they are. He's come into Lystra. He's listened to them. He's understand, he understands where they're coming from. And he takes the same gospel that he shared at Pisidian Antioch. He shares the same gospel with them, but he gets there in a different way. Because they're different people. He stops and listens and notices who they are and where they're coming from and what they care about. He doesn't view uh, these unbelievers with a differing worldview simply dismissively. It's not true. It's not a valid or true or true worldview. But he meets them where they are and guides them to the gospel, to the truth claims of the gospel in a different way than he did the people in the city in Antioch. That means that God has called us as we think about our family members and our friends and our neighbors, that it's not a one-size-fits-all way that we present the gospel to them. We need to spend time thinking about who they are and what they care about and find a common way to get to the truth claims of the gospel from where they are. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. You don't share the gospel with a neighbor who doesn't even believe in God or believe in the Bible uh, the same way that you would somebody who is here on Sunday morning, most likely. You would come at it in a different way. But so many times Christians, honestly, we come at sharing the gospel with a pride thing. We either want to get a notch in our belt or the preacher told us we need to do this or like I just want to. You know, I need to get this out of the way and we share the gospel and we don't really believe that it's actually going to do what he says. We don't believe enough to actually take the time. We don't care enough to actually take the time to listen to this person and see where they're coming from and how can I help them see the truth claims of the gospel in a way that they can see it. Mission pushes us to help people see where the gospel intersects in their life. The same gospel, but different approaches to get there. Mission pushes wider. We have to care about the heart of God in order to get there. And we have to care enough about people to help us actually see where they're coming from and find out how can we help them? How can we serve them? How can we lead them to the gospel? How can we lead them to Jesus? Mission begins vertically. Mission pushes wider. 
And then lastly and quickly, mission digs deeper. The church planning team, they've gone through uh, Cyprus. They've traveled through different areas of Turkey. In this passage, they go to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And then in verse 19, what we read, that when the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. They end up going to uh, Derby. In verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they turn around and they return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And they strengthen, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice the, in verse 21, it says they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch in verse 22. What did they do when they got to each, when they revisited each town that they, that they went to? They strengthened the souls of the disciples. Notice that term there, disciples. They didn't just visit these towns and share the gospel and have people respond to an altar call or fill out a card and say, oh, that's good. These people responded and move on. They, they were establishing a church in each place where they went. They were establishing a community of believers who would mutually strengthen each other and serve, the gospel, and serve God and act as a faithful witness in the town or the city in which they were in. They were disciples. They weren't just converts. They were, the word disciple means the idea of someone who is a continual learner, a continual follower. Mission doesn't just end and just spreading the gospel and just saying, oh, that's good. We move on now to the next thing. It has to do with helping to make sure that these people that we share the gospel with continue in their faith. It means that we're deeply, there's no concept of Christianity that's not deeply tied to each other as believers. Trying to mutually strengthen each other because the goal, the eternal goal is not just to share the gospel and get a notch from my belt because somebody you know, checked the mark on the card or prayed a prayer and I can say all oh, that happened. The goal is that that person meets me in heaven in the end. The goal is that a strong, mutually uh, strengthening, faithfully witnessing community of believers are established in our communities and in our neighborhoods. How would your community, how would your neighborhood change if several neighbors on your street became believers and you guys faithfully sought to strengthen each other in the faith and you poured your life into helping to strengthen them and make sure that they are growing as disciples? How would that revolutionize your street? How would that revolutionize our community? How would that revolutionize your workplace? How would that revolutionize Myrtle Beach if there were communities like that all across the Grand Strand, who together were one community, worshiping God and serving as faithful witness, making sure that we are strengthening each other and growing in the faith. They strengthened the disciples and they encouraged them. And they encouraged them to continue in the faith. It's not enough to start. We want to finish. 
all of us in this room, we want to finish strong, and we want the people that we care about and share the gospel with, we want to see them not only start their race, but we want to see them finish strong. And honestly, that requires a deep investment of your life that's going to involve continual risk. It's going to involve continual lack of um, comfort for you. Because that's what it does. But it's worth it. They don't just show up and have an altar call and leave. They plant churches. They leave leadership in place. That's because the goal was to make disciples who would glorify Jesus. The goal was to make disciples whose eternity was changed. The goal was for the goal was eternity for those who previously didn't know. And, and frankly, I think that's something that I'll just speak for myself. I've been around church long enough that honestly, the concept of an eternal difference between salvation and joy and unity with God in heaven and eternal damnation, that gets lost on me sometimes. If I really believed and remembered that, that would drastically change the way that I live my life. If I view it and see it the way God sees it with his heart. The goal was a local church that would be a faithful and powerful witness to the community. Now, that's the mission. That's the victory. God has defined it for us. It's not simply crossing midfield and getting excited because we got a first down. It's taking it all the way to the end. That's a victory. So my question for us this morning is, what are you considering a win in life? What's a win in life for you? What's, what is success for you and for me? What is it that we think that if at the end of the day, at the end of each week, at the end of a year, like, hey, that was a successful day. That was a, success, a successful week. That was a successful year. What's a win for us? God's defined what it is. It involves lots of other things, but God's defined what it is for us. What do we consider a win when we think about church? Is it when the music is good or the preaching is okay? Is it when the coffee is hot or they have enough muffins? Is it that I can get in and out pretty easy? Is it I'm entertained? Is it that I'm pleased with the way everything's going? Is it the, these, it's meeting my needs? Or is the question, are we as a church leveraging all that we have for the great win of the mission of God? To plant churches and to see people turn from darkness to light, from death to life, to disciples. Are you unclear of the goal? Are you convinced of its importance? Do you believe it can happen? Are you unclear of the goal? Are you convinced of its importance? And do you believe that it can happen? And do we as a church, are we clear? Are we convinced? And do we believe? These are questions I want us to ask this morning.
as we proceed in the service and questions that I want us to, proceed, to think about and let God work in our heart as we spend this time in prayer and fasting in the coming weeks. And close with this. Here's how we can be clear of the goal and convinced of its importance and believe that it can happen. It's because God is so personally invested in the mission that he sent his son. The second person that God had became a human being. He lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death on our behalf. He rose again and he is seated the right hand of the father. And that's how we can be sure that what the, what the clarity of the goal is, is to be eternal eternity in heaven with him. And that's how we can be convinced of his importance because it was important enough that he did that for us. He did that for his mission. And that's how we can be confident that he will succeed in his mission because it's his mission and not ours. He's put all his chips on the table. He is all in. And it's, he is working it. He is doing it. And if we just simply join him there, sharing his heart, we'll then share our lives with him and live for him. Father, as we uh, prepare to continue to worship you, to break the bread and to partake of the body and the blood that you shed for us, that is our assurance that you are serious about this and that you will fulfill it, that you are doing it if we'll simply join you there. God, would you let wash over us a sense of your glory and your beauty. Would you help us to share your heart and they'd be compelled on mission for you. And it's for your glory that we say this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.